Chapter twenty five of Lives of Poor Boys Who Became Famous. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. Lives of Poor Boys Who Became Famous by Sarah Knowles Bolton. Chapter twenty five. Messonnier. The old maxim that the gods reward all things to labor has had fit illustration in Messonnier. He has been a life of constant, unvaried toil. He came to Paris a poor, unknown boy, and has worked over fifty years till he stands a master in French art. Jean-Louis Ernest Messonnier was born at Lyon in 1811. His early life was passed in poverty so grinding that the great artist never speaks of it, and in such obscurity that scarcely anything is known of his boyhood. At nineteen he came to Paris to try his fate in one of the great centres of the world. He, of course, found no open doors, nobody standing ready to assist genius. Genius must ever open doors for itself. The lad was a close observer, and had learned to draw accurately. He could give every variety of costume, and express almost any emotion in the face of his subject. But he was unknown." He might do good work, but nobody wanted it. He used to paint by the side of Dubonnier in the Louvre, it is said, for one dollar a yard. Now his Amateurs in Painting, a chef de voix of six inches in size, is bought by Leoncé for six thousand dollars. Such is fame. Time was so necessary in this struggle for bread that he could sleep only every other night, and for six months his finances were so low, it is stated, that he existed on ten cents a week. No wonder that the sorrows of those days are never mentioned. His earliest work was painting the tops of bonbon boxes and fans. Once he grew brave enough to take four little sepia drawings to an editor to illustrate a fairy tale in a magazine for children. The editor said the drawings were charming, but he could not afford to have them engraved, and so returned them with thanks. His first illustrations in some unknown journal were scenes from the life of The Old Bachelor. In the first picture he is represented making his toilet before the mirror, his wig spread out on the table. In the second, dining with two friends. In the third, being abused by his housekeeper. In the fourth, on his deathbed, surrounded by greedy relations. And in the fifth, the servants ransacking the death chamber for the property. For a universal history he drew figures of Isaiah, St. Paul, and Charlemagne, besides almost numberless ornamental letters and headings of chapters. Of course he longed for more remunerative work, for fame, but he must plod on for months yet. He worked conscientiously, taking the greatest pains with every detail. His first picture, exhibited in 1833, when he was twenty-two, called The Visitors, an interior view of a house, with an old gentleman receiving two visitors, all dressed in the costume of James I, admirable for its light and shade, was bought by the Society of the Friends of Art for twenty dollars. Two years later he made illustrations of the Bible for the Sieur Raymond, of Holofernes invading Judea, and Judith appearing before Holofernes. For Paul and Virginia he made forty-three beautiful landscapes. They contain evidence of long and careful work in the hothouses of the Jardin des Plantes, and in the front of the old bric-a-brac dealer's stalls, 
which used to stand about the entrance to the Louvre, and how admirably, with the help of these slowly and scrupulously finished studies, could he reproduce, in an ornamental letter or floral ornament, a lily broken by the storm, or a sheaf of Indian arms and musical instruments. In 1836 his Chess Players, Two Men Watching Intently the Moves of Chess, and The Little Messenger, attracted a crowd of admirers, each sold for twenty dollars. He had now struggled for six years in Paris. It was high time that his unremitting and patient work should find approval. The people were amazed at so vast an amount of labor in so small a space. They looked with their magnifying glasses and found the work exquisite in detail. They had been accustomed to great canvases, glowing colors, and heroic or romantic sentiments, but here there was wonderful workmanship. When the people began to admire, critics began to criticize. They said, Moussonnier can depict home-like or ordinary scenes, but not historic. He said nothing, but soon brought out Diderot among the philosophers, Grimm, D'Alembert, Baron Holbach, and others in the seventeenth century. Then they said he can draw interiors only, and on canvas not much larger than his thumbnail. He soon produced the portrait of the sergeant, one of the most daring experiments in the painting of light in modern art. The man stands out there in the open by himself, literally bathed in light, and he makes a perfect picture. Then they were sure that he could not paint movement. He replied by painting Rixi, two ruffians who are striving to fight, but are withheld by friends. This was given by Louis Napoleon to the prince consort. Meissonier also showed that he could depict great scenes, by Moreau and de Soils on the eve of the Battle of Hohenlinden, the retreat from Russia, and the Emperor as Solferino. Into these he put his admiration for Napoleon the Great, and his adoration for his defeated country. In the former picture, the two generals are standing on a precipice, surveying the snow-covered battlefield with a glass. The trees are bending under a strong wind, and the cloaks of the generals are fluttering behind them. One feels the power of this picture. In painting The Retreat from Russia, the artist borrowed the identical coat worn by Napoleon, and had it copied, crease for crease and button for button. When I painted that picture, he said, I executed a great portion of it out of doors. It was midwinter, and the ground was covered with snow. Sometimes I sat at my easel for five or six hours together, endeavoring to seize the exact aspect of the winter atmosphere. My servant placed a hot foot-stove under my feet, which he renewed from time to time, but I used to get half-frozen and terribly tired. He had a wooden horse made in imitation of the white charger of the emperor, and seating himself on this, he studied his own figure in a mirror. His studies for this picture were almost numberless, a horse's head, an uplifted leg, cuirasses, helmets, models of horses in red wax, etc. He also prepared a miniature landscape, strewn with white powder resembling snow, with models of heavy wheels running through it, that he might study the furrow made in that terrible march home from burning Moscow. All this was work, hard, patient, exacting work. It had now become evident to the world, and to the critics as well, that Meissonier was a master, that he was not confined to small canvases, nor home scenes. In 1855 he received the Grand Medal. In 1856 he was made an officer of the Legion of Honor. In 1861 
a member of the Institute, and in 1867, at the International Exhibition, he received the Grand Medal again. When the prizes were given by the Emperor, the Battle of Soferino was placed in the center of the space cleared for the ceremony, with the works of Reimers, the Russian painter, Naus of Prussia, Rousseau, the French landscape painter, and others. This painting represents Napoleon III in front of his staff, looking upon the battle as a cool chess player studies a chessboard. On the right, in the foreground, some artillerymen are maneuvering their guns. The corpses of a French soldier and two white Austrians, torn to rags by some explosion, show where the battle has passed by. Meissonier's paintings now brought enormous prices. His Marshal Saxe and his staff brought $8,600 in New York. The soldiers at cards in 1876, in the same city, $11,500. In 1867, his cavalry charge was sold to Mr. Probasco of Cincinnati for $30,000, and the Battlefield of Friedland, upon which he is said to have worked for fifteen years, to A.T. Stewart of New York for $60,000. Every figure in this was drawn from life, and the horses molded in wax. It represents Napoleon on horseback, on a slight elevation, his marshals grouped around him, holding aloft his cocked hat in salutation, as the soldiers pass hurriedly before him. Edmund About once wrote, To cover Monsieur Monseigneur's pictures with gold pieces would simply be to buy them for nothing, and the practice has now been established of covering them with banknotes. The blacksmith, shoeing a patient old cart-horse, perfect in anatomy. La Halt, some soldiers at an inn, now in Hentford House Gallery, and La Barricade, a souvenir of the Civil War, are among the favorite pictures of this famous man. And yet, as one looks at some of the exquisite work about a convivial scene, the words of the great Boston painter, William Hunt, come to mind. Being shown a picture, very fine in technique, by a Munich artist, of a drunken man holding a half-filled glass of wine, he said, It is skillfully done, but what is the use of doing it? The subject isn't worthy of the painter. Rarely does a woman appear in Messonnier's pictures. He has done nothing to deprave morals, which is more than can be said of some French art. His portrait of Madame Henri Tenard was greatly admired, while that of Mrs. Mackay was not satisfactory, and was said to have been destroyed by her. Few persons, however, can afford to destroy a messonnier. When told once that he was a fortunate man, as he could possess as many messonniers as he pleased, he replied, No, no, I cannot. That would ruin me. They are a great deal too dear. He lives in the Boulevard Marchabelle, near the lovely Parc Mansion, in the heart of the artist quarter in Paris. His handsome home, designed by himself in every detail, is of the Italian Renaissance style, he has two studies, one a quiet nook where he can escape interruptions, and one very large where are gathered masterpieces from every part of the world. Here is a courtyard in the time of Louis Thirteenth, brilliantly crowded with figures in gala dress, a bride of the same period, stepping into an elegant carriage of a crimson color, for which Meissonier had a miniature model built by a coachmaker to study from. A superb work of Titian, a figure of an Italian woman in a robe of green velvet, the classic outline of her head shown against a crimson velvet curtain in the background, a sketch of Bonaparte on horseback, at the head of his picturesquely dressed staff, reviewing the young conscripts of the army of Italy, who are cheering as he passes, and many more valuable pictures. 
Here, too, are bridles of black leather, with silver ornaments, once the property of Murat. One picture here, of a special interest, was painted at his summer house at Poissy, when his house was crowded with German soldiers in the War of 1871. To escape their company, says Monsieur Clerty, in the rage that he experienced at the national defeat, he shut himself up in his studio, and threw upon the canvas the most striking, the most vivid, the most avenging of allegories. He painted Paris, enveloped in a veil of mourning, defending herself against the enemy, with her soldiers and her dying grouped round a tattered flag, sailors, officers, and fusiliers, soldiers, national guards, suffering women, and dying children. And, hovering in the air above them, with a Prussian eagle by her side, was famine, wan and haggard famine, accomplishing the work that the bombardment had failed to achieve. His summer home, like the one in Paris, is fitted up luxuriously. He designed most of the furniture and the silver service for his table. Flowers, especially geraniums and tea-roses, blossom in profusion about the grounds, while great trees and fountains make it a restful and inviting place. The walls of the dining-room are hung with crimson and gold satin damask, against which are several of his own pictures. An engraver at work, clad in a red dressing-gown, and seated in a room hung with ancient tapestry, has the face of his son Charles, also an artist, looking out from the frame. One of Madame Messonnier also adorns this room. Nearby are his well-filled stables, his favorite horse, Rivoli, being often used for his model. He is equally fond of dogs, and has several expensive hounds. How strange all this, compared with those early days of pinching poverty. He is rarely seen in public, because he has learned, what, alas, some people learn too late in life, that there is no success without one commands his or her time. It must be frittered away neither by calls nor parties, neither by idle talk nor useless visits. Painting or writing for an hour a day never made greatness. Art and literature will give no masterships except to devotees. The young lady, sauntering down to look at ribbons, never makes a George Eliot. The young man, sauntering down to look at the buyers of ribbons, never makes a Messonnier. Nature is rigid in her laws. Her gifts only grow to fruitage in the hands of workers. Messonnier is now seventy-four, with long gray beard and hair, round, full face, and bright hazel eyes. His friend, Clerty, says of him, This man, who lives in a palace, is as moderate as a soldier on the march. This artist, whose canvases are valued by the half-million, is as generalist as a nabob. He will give to a charity sale a picture worth the price of a house. Praised as he is by all, he has less conceit in his nature than a wholesale painter. January 31, 1891, at his home in Paris, the great artist passed away. His illness was very brief. The funeral services took place at the Church of the Madeleine, which was thronged with the leaders of art and letters. An imposing military cortege accompanied the body to its last resting place at Poissy, the summer home of the artist, on the Seine, ten miles from Versailles. End of chapter 25